Thank you very much for being here. Last week, we had an election, and whatever the challenges our democratic system has, from the mundane, mundane details of voting machines to the structural problems of money in politics, the election clearly expressed popular will. But we've been at it. That was not a political comment, but it was. <laughs> but we've been at it for more than two centuries. Most of the world's democracies have had far less time to establish themselves. In the last 30 years alone, nearly 100 states have moved towards new democratic forms of government. The challenges, the challenges they confront are enormous, and they are compounded by the pressures of globalization. When our framers could tinker, when our framers formed the country, they could tinker in relative isolation. Protected by vast oceans, these new democracies, however, must organize institutions, settle disputes between clashing ethnic factions, broaden access to jobs and education and healthcare, all the while coping with tectonic shifts in the scale and scope of international trade, communication, and technology. The conversation today could not be more timely. Globalization means our fates are tied together as never before, and so it is vital that we consider the myriad challenges facing these fledgling democracies. We're indebted to Robert and Myra Kraft for making this historic meeting possible. Launched in March, the Kraft Program on Interfaith and Intercultural Awareness fosters open debate on civil and civil discourse on a wide range of subjects, including race, religion, and culture. It is a hallmark of the university's commitment to critical inquiry and academic freedom, and I would like to ask Robert Kraft, who's joined us today, to stand and receive our thanks. Robert. We take up this year's theme, The Challenges of New Democracies, with two of the most dynamic figures of our time, Václav Havel and Bill Clinton, two friends and former presidents who've led, witnessed, and helped nurture the birth of democracies in Eastern Europe and throughout the world. Together, they may just represent the greatest local collection of experience on this issue since two King's College graduates named Hamilton and Jay, joined forces with James Madison on a series of articles in 1787, aimed at convincing New Yorkers that the best way to meet the very real challenges facing the new American democracy was to ratify the Constitution. Each of these individuals in their own ways have faced the challenges of moving from the poetry of political change to the prose of governing. Since leaving the White House in 2001, our neighbor, President Clinton, has been a regular presence on this campus a short walk from his 125th Street office. From reflecting on the legacy of Brown versus Board of Education to speaking out on the global fight against AIDS at last year's symposium, last June symposium honoring Dean Allen Rosenfield. Last time President Clinton was here, I said that one more lecture and he'd be up for tenure. So this is it. Today we welcome Professor Bill Clinton. <laughs> Václav Havel. Václav Havel has helped define the role of the citizen artist in our era. In his courageous protest against Soviet-imposed communism, Havel taught us that free speech is the gateway to self-creation, while the suppression of it allows the state to manipulate citizens into living a lie. It is never easy to pull a writer away from his study, and we're especially grateful to President Havel for joining us here for a seven-week residency at Columbia. It is now my privilege to welcome President Clinton and President Havel.
since this is an audience largely made up of students, can we begin just by saying, what would you say that students today ought to try to understand about the new world that they will be facing? And how is it different from the world that you faced? President Hubble? Mm -hmm. Dear friends, at first, I hope you will permit me to speak Czech. Uh, my English has not my confidence, and I would not like especially to speak in this poor English in presence of such wonderful speaker like my friend Bill Clinton is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ja si myslím, k otázce samotné. Já si myslím, že asi nejdůležitější dneska je, aby politici mysleli dopředu. Mysleli opravdu v desítiletích a podle toho se chovali k naší planetě, podle toho vlastně jakýmsi způsobem, jakýmsi způsobem formovali celé, celé svoje počínání, protože nad touto civilizací se vznášejí velká nebezpečí a úkolem politiku je nikoli vyhrát příští volby, ale čelit těmto nebezpečím. Okay, I think the most important thing is for politicians to think ahead in whatever they do and to think in terms of decades uh, and to act accordingly because there are a great many dangers facing our planet now. Uh, and uh, it's, it's important for politicians to make choices that will, will confront those dangers uh, because uh, these are the real issues they should be concerned about and not just about the next elections. President Clinton. I think the, uh, the most important thing about the 21st century is the degree of interdependence among peoples throughout the world and our interdependence with the ecosystem of the earth. And all of our problems flow out of the emergence of negative interdependence and all of our solutions can be found in positive interdependence. I mean, basically, um, this is a more interesting looking crowd than it would have been 30 years ago. That's evidence of positive interdependence. The fact that uh, everybody's somewhat vulnerable to terror, weapons of mass destruction, is evidence of negative interdependence. The fact that half the world's people still live on less than $2 a day, or 25% of all the deaths are from AIDS, TB, malaria, and infections related to dirty water. That also affects us all. The fact that there is <clears throat> declining arable soil, usable water, important regenerating forests, and even oil is a depleting resource that some experts believe that we only have 35 years of recoverable oil left and rising calamitous consequences of climate change. All these are a function of interdependence. And I think that we have to develop not only, a, as Vaclav said, a, a view of the future, but a level of consciousness that basically takes that into account in every decision we make. Because if you look at all, and it goes beyond even what I've said, if you look at all the biological advances of the 20th century and the early 21st century, every complicated, minute advance is further evidence of interdependence. The, the sequencing of the human genome rec uh, revealed that 99.9% of our genetic makeup is shared with everybody else, that all of our differences, every single difference we have can be found in one-tenth of one percent of our genetic makeup, yet we spend 90% of our time working about the one-tenth of one percent and almost no uh, time thinking about the implications of 99.9%. We need a little more humility. If you look at all the physical, the physics discoveries from, from Einstein's theory of relativity, right through the current exciting uh, research on trying to develop a unified theory of matter, they all show a level of interdependence of things that 
basically is alien to our way of thinking. We have to organize our reality into boxes and divide and make distinctions. But unless we understand that underneath it all, we share a common fate with each other and with the world, we're going to be in trouble. Conversely, if we do develop enough people who can think that way, I think the 21st century will be the most exciting, peaceful, prosperous time in human history. President Clinton, I, I've heard you say, and I find it quite uh, powerful, that the United States now being the dominant economic, military, and in other ways, cultural power in the world, really should use that power at this moment uh, in anticipation of a time in which the United States will not be the only dominant power. And that stands in contrast to a view of U.S. policy that would exercise its dominance now. And I wonder if you could say more about how the United States would act under a philosophy of anticipating the moment when it's not any longer a dominant power. What, what do you mean by that? Well, first of all, we shouldn't want to have the dominant economic position we do now because the only way we can do it with only 300 million people on a planet of six and a half billion is if there's a huge unacceptable number of poor people in the world. I mean, the, the, the Indians have a billion people and their economy is growing rapidly, but their per capita income is still about $600. The Chinese are more than double that, but they still have vast swaths of poor people. And yet, since intelligence and ability are evenly distributed throughout the world, as other people get their act together, by definition, if they have more people than we do, as a nation, we won't be dominant. I mean, it's just, and the Chinese, sometime in the next two or three days, probably, uh, will have a trillion dollars in cash reserves. And we have a combined annual uh, budget and trade deficit of a trillion dollars. We have to borrow money from them to pay for my tax cut. As you know, I don't think that's a very good idea. But I think, uh, I think we have to be mindful of that. Uh, there was a view that prevailed in the current government for several years, although I think it's changing now that since we had this magic moment, we should use all this power to try to solve all the problems, get rid of all the bad guys, change everything. The problem is that a humble view of human nature recognizes that there will always be problems with us and that what we have to do is to create a, a system in which we can solve them together. So I'll give you just one example. Let's assume you support the war in Iraq and the conflict in Afghanistan and a $500 billion a year military budget. We only spend about 20, maybe 25 billion now on foreign assistance of all kinds. But we know how to help people alleviate poverty, fight HTB and malaria. We know what it would cost to put all 130 million kids in the world who don't go to school in school in a way that would also serve our foreign policy interests. If you look at Pakistan, for example, we gave them a lot of money to buy airplanes, or gave them a lot of airplanes, and we didn't give them any money to put their kids in school. So when poor people couldn't afford the schools, they sent their kids to the madrasas, and the rest is history. If we were to increase that by 30 billion a year, if we were to give $50 billion a year in foreign assistance, or if we were to go up to 7 tenths of 1% of our income and foreign assistance, which is the international goal, and you can work out the numbers in an $11 trillion GDP. In my opinion, that would do more than almost anything we could do to create a world with more partners and fewer adversaries, and a world where once we're no longer dominant, we'll still be a very important, we, I hope we'll always be the best country in the world, the most important country in the world, but we will not have a dominant position. And dominance, as you see from the current difficulties in Iraq, is a way overrated concept anyway. So I just think that we need to ask ourselves always, what kind of return will we get on an investment to have the kind of world we want our children and grandchildren to live in if we are no longer dominant? 
And in effect, we already know that the benefits of dominance are ambiguous at best. So that's just one example. I wish if we, we $30 billion more, and we could pay our fair share of trying to meet the UN Millennium Development Goals, it would change the attitudes toward America, and it would create a world, I think, that would be nicer for us to live in if we can't throw our weight around. President Hubble, uh, you have lived through and led a society that went from an authoritarian regime into a democracy. And you saw it go from a fledgling democracy to a more mature democracy and the splitting of the country. Uh, how do you see the emergence of new democracies today, especially in Central Europe, but elsewhere, what are the dynamics that are occurring and, and what needs to happen to sustain them and nurture them over time? Já myslím, že veliké překvapení, které nám přinesl pád komunismu, byl příchod postkomunismu. So I think the big surprise that came after the end of communism is the phenomenon that I call post-communism. To znamená taková zvláštní historická fáze, s níž jsme moc nepočítali. My jsme si představovali ten přechod k demokracii snažší a rychlejší. Uh, it's a special historical phase that no one really counted on, I think. We all expected the transition from communism to democracy to happen much faster. Demokratické instituce máme, demokracie v našich zemích funguje. Historicky jsem optimista, ale nemohu skrýt fakt, že to všechno je daleko komplikovanější, než se nám zdálo v těch revolučních dnech. Uh, well, we have democratic institutions, they, they function well. I'm a historical optimist, uh, but nonetheless, uh, the fact remains that having an actual democratic society is much more complicated than we imagined it would be back in those revolutionary days. Jenom jeden, jenom jeden malý uh, příklad toho, jak je to komplikované. V Če u nás v Československu bylo naprosto všechno státní, od ohromných podniků až po poslední holičství. So for just uh, one small example, in Czechoslovakia, everything we had uh, was state-owned, from enormous uh, state-owned industries uh, down to the local barber shop. Po desítiletí tomu tak bylo. A uh, ono mě to připomíná takový interzovaný kus nábytku, který vzniká strašně dlouho, ale který lze rozkopnout během minuty. Takovým způsobem bylo, byly ty tržní poměry a vůbec soukromé vlastnictví rozkopnuto u nás v roce 48. a po desítiletí to bylo všechno totálně státní. Uh, uh, so we had uh, uh, for decades uh, uh, this system where we didn't have democratic uh, institutions and economic relations and uh, I, I uh, imagine an, uh, an analogy with a piece of furniture which takes an awfully long time uh, to create a, a beautiful piece of furniture uh, which requires tons of, of, uh, of labor and craftsmanship but you can destroy it in a moment. And this is what happened with our society in 1948 when all the existing relations, uh, both the economic relations and social relations, uh, were done away with. Proč o tom mluvím? Je velkým jaksi úkolem té bezprostředně po revoluční doby po pádu komunismu a železné opony bylo privatizovat. Ale nebyly žádné zkušenosti. Případ tak velkého privatizačního úkolu nemá obdobu v moderních dějinách. Of course, a, a very big task in the immediate post-revolutionary period uh, after the fall of the Iron Curtain was privatization. 
but uh, we had no experience to draw on for this. There was no real precedent for such a, a massive uh, privatization of state-owned property. Kde se měli vzít podnikatelé? Podnikatelská tradice, kultura, stejně tak jako živnostenská, byla přerována na dlouhou dobu. Where were we to find entrepreneurs? Because entrepreneurial traditions and an entrepreneurial culture had been interrupted in, in our society for so many years. Nakonec to všechno dopadlo dobře, povedlo se to, ale za cenu vzniku čehosi, co, bys, co patří k tomu, co nazývám postkomunismem. Totiž velkému, takové velké invazi mafií do ekonomiky. Uh, overall, it, it turned out well, it was more or less successful, we, we did pay a price for it. And this is a, a phenomenon which is a typical feature of uh, post-communist society, which is a big invasion of mafias uh, into, into the economic sector. A teprve teď, 16 let po pádu komunismu, se skutečně začínáme vyrovnávat s tím, co jsem svého času nazval mafiánský kapitalismus. Se začínáme vyrovnávat tedy s tím příchodem zločinnosti do biznisu. And it's really only now, uh, some 17 years after the fall of communism in my country, that we're coming to terms uh, with this phenomenon and, and coming up with ways to, to battle this influx of, of mafias uh, into, into the economy. To, o čem jsem mluvil, je jenom jedna z příčin, jenom jeden, jedna z dimenzí nebo aspektů toho, co rozumím postkomunismem. To je jakési přechodné fáze, která teď, zdá se, doufejme, už končí. This is just one small example, one small illustration of a whole uh, complex of, of phenomena that are part of post-communism, uh, post uh, uh, this transitory phase that I hope now we are uh, beginning to emerge from. And are you optimistic? Ja se nerad nazývam optimistou nebo pesimistou. Optimista je človek, ktorý si je jist, že všechno dobře dopadne. Pesimista je človek, ktorý si je jist, že všechno špatne dopadne. Ja nevím, jak všechno dopadne. Proto nejsem ani optimista, ani pesimista. Nicméně nosím ve své duši naději. Well, I don't like to use these words to define myself, to call myself an optimist or a pessimist. Uh, an optimist is someone who is certain that everything will turn out well. A pessimist is someone who is certain that everything will turn out badly. Uh, I am not certain of anything, uh, but I do know that inside me I have hope. President Clinton? I want to do a little uh, <coughs> promo for Havel here. <laughs> because we have a lot of young people here, and, and the Berlin Wall fell 17 years ago. It seems impossible now. But in my 60 years of life, there have been three great figures who through nonviolence changed the course of a country. Gandhi, Mandela, who would be the first to tell you that it took 14, his first 14 years in prison to burn the anger out of his heart. And Havel. And it, it is not surprising to me, given the way communism operated in all these countries, that organized crime would be a problem today. All a great leader can do is open the door. But because of him, the Czech people are free. They're in the middle of a political crisis now where so far the strict rule of law has been followed as people contest for political power and influence. And when you reach a historical turning point, all you can do is open the door. Then others have to keep walking through it. But then I'll go back to what I said before. The way we think about these things, our level of consciousness has everything to do with how they come out. And I think the most important thing that could be done to deal with all this is to have more people have the worldview that he does. 
but none of us should ever underestimate the breathtaking nature of what he did in a peaceful way. President Hovell, do you have anything nice to say about President Clinton? No, no, no. 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 No, well, I just have to say thank you for these kind words addressed to me, which, uh, as you must understand, make me feel a little bit embarrassed. Zároveň bych ihned k tomu chtěl dodat, že ten pokojný přechod od komunismu k demokratickému systému nebyl zdaleka dílem jednoho člověka, že byl v té společnosti jakýsi potenciál, kterému bylo, který bylo třeba v určité chvíli zaktivizovat a nějak artikulovat ty, tu obecnou vůli. Jsem-li tázán, zda mohu promluvit o Billu Clintonovi stejně hezky, jak promluvil on o mně, pak bych měl říct aspoň jednu věc, že v době Clintonovy administrativy se staly hrozně důležité věci pro celý svět. Totiž vlastně začala se bořit ta železná opona nejen fyzicky, ale i psychologicky a začaly se rozšiřovat ty společné takzvané západní instituce a byla to především americká zásluha. Západní Evropa se nás bála. Well, if I'm asked whether I can uh, say as nice things about Bill Clinton as he uh, says about me, uh, maybe one thing I would want to emphasize is that during his administration, uh, very important steps uh, were taken uh, uh, to bring about not just the physical uh, destruction of the Iron Curtain, but really uh, uh, the, the more profound uh, democratization of our, uh, of our society and really the changing of the psychology of people who used to live in, in the Eastern Bloc. Uh, and it really is the Americans who helped us most here. Uh, I think the Western Europeans were a little bit afraid of us. Prostě velmi zkráceně řečeno, ve střední Evropě se zdůrazňovalo, že patříme k západu. A v době Clintonovy administrativy se to začalo skutečně potvrzovat i institucionálně. Začalo se mluvit o rozšiřování těch základních organizací, organizací toho západního světa. Bez rozšíření NATO například by těžko se rozšířila Evropská unie. Uh, well, to put this briefly, uh, in Central Europe we, we had a great emphasis on uh asserting that we belong to the West, and under the Clinton administration, this was affirmed in a very important institutional way, uh, uh, expanding the institutions uh, uh, that really constitute the basis of the Western world. And uh, surely, had we not, uh, largely through the help of the uh, Clinton administration, been admitted to NATO, uh, we probably would not have made the same progress towards institutions like the European Union. Before going to questions from the audience, just one more question, but a more personal one for each of you. You're both extraordinarily gifted people in public life and universally admired. Uh, could you say something about what it's been like 
to go from the position of president to the world after. And I know, President Hubble, that you've been fascinated by King Lear and the nature of power and the role of details uh, of ordinary exercise of power and the relation to grand theories. And President Clinton, I, we know that you've continued to recreate, to create a life uh, committed to, to helping people less fortunate all around the world and your comment about the need to change the consciousness uh, of the way in which we approach the world is something you are living out uh, before us. What has it been like, what is it like as you look back on your time and on this time, the sort of exercise of power and the post office life? Well, <clears throat> I've had a great few years. I've, I've loved it. I, I, I love being president. It's a good thing we had a 22nd Amendment or I, they would have had to vote me out or carry me out in a pine box. So I, <laughs> but on the other hand, I, I made up my mind that I would not be someone who spent the rest of his life wishing I were still president. It seemed to be a stupid way to waste a day. And, uh, and uh, I, I, and also an arrogant thing. I, I was grateful that I had the chance to serve eight years. And I loved it, and I loved the work. I didn't miss the power. Uh, I, I, I think it was because of the way I was raised. I never thought very much of power. I only thought it was something that you had for a little while, and you were supposed to use it in the right way. And I grew up in the South in the civil rights uh, struggle, and I was always hypersensitive to the potential of abuse of power. So I used it as best I could when I had it, and when I lost it, I decided I needed to find some other way to be effective. And I've had a wonderful time, and I, I, I must say, I, was, I underestimated the extent to which, in this world, private citizens can do public good through the NGO movement, and, and you see it, of course, writ large with Bill Gates, and. Bono, but there are millions upon millions of people who are out there doing things that are contributing to the world I want to leave to my daughter and the grandchildren I hope to have. And so I've, and besides that, now when I go someplace, if I want to take two more hours and go to an art gallery or walk the streets, I can do it, which I couldn't do when I was president. So there are benefits to both positions, and I like what I'm doing just fine. President Hubble? <clears throat> no. Já jsem, zdá se, odsouzen k úloze pro průkopníka, pionýra, neboť jsem průkopníkem českého ex-prezidentství. Well, it seems I'm fated always to fulfill the role of a pioneer to go where no one has gone before, and now I'm going to be the pioneer of the Czech ex-presidency. <laughs> <laughs> Amerika je nadneseně řečeno plná bývalých prezidentů, ale u nás nikdy žádný prezident neskončil normálně svůj termín. Buď to byl s hanbou vyhnán z toho úřadu, nebo během, během pobytu ve funkci zemřel. A Ocitl jsem se náhle ve zvláštní situaci, kdy jsem musel opět začít vytvářet nějakou tradici. Well, it seems to me with a certain degree of exaggeration that the United States is full of former presidents. Whereas uh, in my country we really don't have uh, this precedent. Every, every, every president... Uh, uh, up, in, up until now has left office either in some kind of disgrace, been chased out of office, uh, or has died in office. Řekl bych i literárně inspirativní. So I'd say that for me it's a very interesting experience and one which has afforded me a certain literary inspiration. Například lidé nevědí, jak mě oslovovat. For example, people don't know how they should address me. 
někdo mi říká pane prezidentem. Some people say Mr. President. Někdo říká pane bývalý prezidentem. Some pay, say Mr. Former President. Někdo říká pane Havel. Someone says Mr. Havel. A já čekám, až někdo řekne pane bývalý Havel. <laughs> And I'm waiting for someone to say Mr. Former Havel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, here are some questions from the audience. <laughs> Must every new nation be a democracy as we envision it? Former Clinton? <laughs> I'm sorry. Once I, actually, I lost the race for Congress once in my 20s, and I saw a little girl a couple of months after I got defeated, and she looked at me and she said, didn't you used to be Bill Clinton? <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, I thought it was an accurate question. <laughs> I, I don't think that every country has to be a democracy, but in the end, it needs to have the support of its people. And I do believe there is, after all, a Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is and has been a part of our international charter for over half century. And I believe that insofar as governments fall short of that, of, of allowing its people basic freedoms and decency, we should try to get them to change and do what we can to support the forces of change. Um, I also think that non-democratic societies are finding that no matter how they try to manage the forces of public opinion and longing, uh, they have a limited ability to do so, and when they give vent to it, they wind up being better off. I'll give you just one example. When the SARS epidemic broke out in Hong Kong, remember that? and then spread to Canada and the world was in a panic. The Chinese government, everyone knew, all the epidemiologists knew that it had to have started on mainland <coughs> China. And this was a problem we didn't know how to deal with. So the Chinese government uh, originally was in total denial. And then the young people of China demonstrated, but instead of going to Tiananmen Square where they could be rounded up, they jammed the government's websites. <laughs> and demanded that the truth be told. To their everlasting credit, the Chinese government turned on a dime, began to cooperate, and an epidemic that could have claimed tens of thousands of lives, maybe more, was shut down. So I think that no, not every government has to be a democracy in the sense that the Czech Republic and the United States are. But in the end, in the modern world, every government will have to acknowledge both the significance of public opinion and the profound importance of liberty and human rights. Uh, President Hubble, before answering, um, one of the things you've written, and it's quite striking to read, is that, that market economies are the most consistent with human nature. Uh, would you say, and I realize it's always tempered when you say that by it should not be turned into an ideology, and it has to be approached in a very practical way, and we have other values uh, that are more important than simply maximizing wealth, and yet it's a phenomenal way of organizing the economies of society. Do you think that that's also true of democracy, that it's, that it's really the most consistent with human nature, and how do you see that uh, in the context of, of countries uh, around the world, like Russia, for example? Za prvé, za prvé bych řekl, že jsem proti každé posedlosti, dogmatismu, fanatismu nebo takové ideové paličatosti. Well, first of all, I'd say I'm against all kinds of obsession or obsessiveness, all kinds of dogmatism fanaticism or ideological hard-headedness. Myslím si, myslím si, že duch 
předchází hmotu a myslím si, že ty základní ty základní lidské hodnoty, včetně solidarity, jsou to, co nazýváme občanskými právy, že to je to nejdůležitější, že by mělo být vlastně všechno podřízeno respektu k těmto, k těmto hodnotám. Ale zároveň bych se bál z toho dělat jakoukoliv uzavřenou ideologii. My máme na toto z naší země velkou citlivost, protože jsme žili ve světě naprosto uzavřené ideologie, to je ideologie komunistické. Že? A já si myslím, že nebezpečí, že ideje stvrdnou v ideologii, je, se vznáší všude a cítím nutnost před tímto nebezpečím varovat. Well, I believe that uh, spirit is prior to matter, and I believe that certain, uh, certain human values like solidarity and civil rights are the most important things, and that everything else in a society should be made subordinate to these values. But I'm a little bit uh, hesitant uh, to make out of this sense of my values a closed ideology. Uh, I'm very sensitive to the experience that we had in my country, of course, where we had uh, a very specific ideology of uh, a Soviet brand of Marxism. And uh, I'm very sensitive to the dangers of when any kind of value system, any ideological system becomes ossified uh, and, and ends up uh, restricting uh, uh, human liberty. Vždycky třeba říkat pravdu. A pak, když máme své pochybnosti o respektu k některým svobodám nebo respektu k některým lidským právům v nějaké zemi, ať to je jakákoliv, jsme povinni to říct. To není projev nepřátelství nebo nechutí k partnerství, ale naopak. To přece dělá přátelé, že si říkají pravdu do očí. Uh, in respect to Russia, I think it's above all important uh, to speak the truth in matters of international relations. If we have concerns uh, about any uh, violations of human rights or the direction that is being taken in the country, we are obliged to tell the truth. And this is not a matter of being anyone's enemy uh, or of having some distaste of dealing with any particular country. Uh, on the contrary, uh, friends tell each other the truth face to face. Já mám na to jeden příklad z vlastní, z vlastní zkušenosti. Byl jsem znám tím, že jsem byl první hlava státu, která oficiálně pozvala Dalajlámu. Byl jsem znám svými sympatiemi k němu i k právům tibetského národa. A navštívil mě ministr zahraničí a místo předseda vlády Čínské lidové republiky. A dřív, než já jsem se snažil, dřív, než já jsem se um, zmínil o Tibetu, začal o něm mluvit sám a mluvil o tom, jak si váží Dalajlámy. A já jsem najednou pochopil, že představitel této gigantické, ohromné země má respekt k někomu, kdo sice představuje zemi proti té jeho mikroskopickou, ale kdo se nebojí říkat pravdu. A velmi obratně diplomaticky začalo o tom tématu mluvit dřív, než já jsem vůbec na to přivedl řeč. So, uh, uh, just one example from personal experience. Uh, I, it's widely known that I am the first head of state who ever invited the Dalai Lama on an official state visit and that I've been very concerned about the, the rights of the Tibetan people. And I just wanted to relate uh, the story of one time when uh, after this, after I had uh, uh, entertained the Dalai Lama, that the Chinese foreign minister uh, paid a visit. And it was he first uh, who, who mentioned uh, the, my contacts with the Dalai Lama and said that he respected the Dalai Lama. 
And so I think this is an example of how, in a case where uh, we might be afraid uh, uh, of, of this approach, but where a huge uh, representative, a huge and powerful state uh, was, was able to, to express their respect for this and for uh, someone from a very tiny uh, constituency who was not afraid to tell the truth and that they uh, made the very uh, appropriate diplomatic step of, of bringing this up first. A number of questions here that obviously relate to uh, Iraq and the question of how to fashion foreign policy that will promote human rights, civil liberties, democracy, security for the world, not support dictators, uh, and yet be realistic. Um, President Clinton, what, what, what are, your, are your thoughts at this moment uh, about that general question and about Iraq in particular? I'll be happy to answer that, but I would like to make one point about the democracy view. There is a difference between a democracy and a majoritarian system. That's the important thing. Democracy is about majority rule and minority rights and individual liberties. And the strength of democracies are normally inversely related to the level of insecurity and deprivation of the population. So Russia is somewhere between a democracy and a majoritarian society. The president, uh, Mr. Putin, is a strong leader who enjoys the support of a majority of the Russian people. He does a lot of things that people like Havel and I don't agree with, you know, kicking out the international NGOs and things like that. But the Russian people suffered enormously psychologically, emotionally, and economically in the aftermath of the end of the Soviet Union and actually leading up to it as their systems began to crumble. So it may uh, give you a simple example in America when uh, there were all these skyjackings a couple of decades ago, we all gave up a tiny bit of our liberty walked through the airport metal detectors. Then after 9-11, we had these huge debates in America about how much of our liberty could we give up and how much liberty could we take away from people who were within our borders without losing the character of our country. So it's best for us not to be arrogant about this. We have to realize there's always a difference between a majoritarian society and a democratic one, and we need to be striving for a democratic one to preserve it against all odds. But it is more difficult the more insecurity and the more deprivation there is. And all of us, all of us, given a certain level of deprivation and insecurity, would give up some measure of liberty. And that is, will be the big debate through the next decade, I think. Now, in terms of our foreign policy, and should we be just for democracies and just for our, just for our national interests and all that, obviously, asking for a democracy as we did in Iraq, has now called into question whether we'd be better off dealing with repressive regimes in the Middle East that are allied with us and at least will try to restrain terrorists who might wish to attack us and keep sending oil over this way. Um, that is only one example of the general problem of trying to pursue your ideals and your interests at the same time in foreign policy. And the truth is that a great and decent country will always try to do both, recognizing there will be some limits on your, the pursuit of your ideals because of the requirement, the first requirement of every nation to take the best care possible of its own people and those within its borders. Uh, I, what I, th I think the initial error we made in Iraq was to go in before the UN inspectors finished their jobs. And I think it had, uh, it put America in the position of conducting its first war of choice in history. It meant that we owned the country without an adequate plan for what would happen afterward. And you just heard President Havel talk very eloquently about the unanticipated consequences of a peaceful transition to democracy in the Czech Republic. How can you be surprised that there were unanticipated consequences of that transition in Iraq after the way they had had the lid kept, uh, the lid was kept on the, all those 
uh, ethnic, tribal, and other conflicts within Iraq. And there was nearly no thought given to that. Uh, we also, in doing it, wound up being with uh, having, in my view, too few forces in Afghanistan in a conflict that was universally supported by the world community that produced a democratic, moderate, Muslim, pro-Western government that now can't control its own territory, and we're at risk there of losing that. So what I think should be done is, uh, I, I think, first of all, I, I'm reluctant to say too much about this because I testified before that commission yesterday. I talked to the president, and I have a wife in the Senate, so I don't, you know, I don't want to, uh, whatever she says, I'm for. <laughs> so, uh, I, 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 but I think, I think in general we're going to have to have some redeployment, some change of policy. Iraq essentially has a democratically elected government and a representative one of limited effectiveness. It is important for those of us who don't approve, support this policy to recognize that nonetheless 70 percent of those people voted and missed their lives to vote. We haven't had a 70% turnout in a very long time in America. And that we would be better off if the country held together rather than falling apart. We would be better off if it had some measure of security and couldn't become a base for terrorist operations against the United States, Europe, and the rest of the Middle East. Uh, and I think that the prospects for that are somewhat uncertain because if you go back to something we were both uh, involved in in different ways in Bosnia and Kosovo. In Bosnia, when we went in and ended the war there, we had A, more troops per capita by far than we have in Iraq, and B, they had already killed 250,000 people and had two and a half million refugees in a country with fewer than, as I remember, six, seven million people, something like that. Much, much smaller than Iraq. So the it may be that the, the people who seek to gain whatever advantage they're fighting for are not tired of killing and dying yet. And our ability to restrain that may be somewhat more limited than we'd like. But what we need to do is to create the maximum amount of incentives for the currently representative but not yet effective government of Iraq to try to make the compromises necessary to hold the country together. Then I would favor uh, keeping in the area uh, enough forces to help them do that once they had the vast majority of people who had fighting and killing capacity bought into a political strategy. Meanwhile, if we were to reduce our involvement there, I would favor heeding our NATO commander's request for more troops in Afghanistan. We cannot lose there. It's a moderate Muslim democracy, anti-Taliban, anti-Al-Qaeda, passionately committed to trying to modernize a country that has been worked over by the former Soviet Union, abandoned by America in the 80s, and a source of heartbreak and trouble since. So that's, in, in the region, that's what I would do uh, in general. That's the direction I think we ought to go. But again, we need to be humble here. It's their lives, their country, their future, and our ability to, to uh, create the conditions of a better outcome given the mistakes that were made, which were considerable in the first two years after Saddam fell, is somewhat limited. But I still think it may well be a salvageable situation. Keep in mind, the Constitution provides for more autonomous regions, which are de facto already being created, but the Sunni, the Shia, and the Kurds. Biggest obstacles now to that are the inter-Shia fighting and the fact that nobody wants to give the Sunnis any of the oil money because none of the oil is under their land. But the Constitution of Iraq, if they follow the rule of law, says the oil belongs to the people. So Hillary has suggested that instead of talking about the ethnic division of the oil, they, they ought to make a monthly or quarterly disbursement to the regional governments on a per capita basis because that's what the Constitution requires, I think, by any reasonable reading. So I, I hope we can work our way to a better result there. And we, we obviously doing what we're doing is not working. We're not prepared to send four or 500,000 troops there, which is what it would take to try to rescue the situation now. Nobody thinks that's uh, achievable. So we're gonna have to redeploy our forces and reduce their numbers enough to bolster our presence in Afghanistan. And then say to the government, we'll give you a reasonable amount of time here 
and I don't favor setting a public timetable, but the government needs to understand that there has to be uh, some success in getting some people out of the killing business and back into the politics business. And if we, we may not be able to get everybody there, but I think they can get a lot more than they're there now, and that ought to be our near-term objective. President Hobble, how do you see the situation in Iraq? Já bych k tomu měl jen dvě poznámky. Za prvé, když vidíme, že na ulici nějaký svalovec bije bezmocnou babičku, pak se hodí, abychom šli na pomoc té babičce. I just have uh, two comments on, on this question. Uh, when we see a big, strong, muscly guy on the street bidding up a defenseless old woman, Obviously, we need to go in and help that old woman. To je akt základní elementární solidarity. This is an act of basic elementary solidarity. Mně přišlo jako nepatřičné, když invaze do Iráku nebyla zdůvodněna touto solidaritou s tím utlačovaným národem, ale jakousi konstrukcí o skrytých zbraních, které ohrožují Ameriku a podobně. It seemed inappropriate to me that the uh, intervention in Iraq was presented not as being motivated by this kind of solidarity uh, for a victim of, of violence, uh, but through this kind of dubious construction of a, a very vaguely uh, identified threat of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. A druhá poznámka, já jsem trošku byl překvapen tím, že to komplikované dění, které po té invazi následovalo, že aspoň trošičku na jeho možnost neupozornili tisíce a tisíce expertů, kteří kteří působí ve vládních institucích i v institucích nevládních. Oni měli přece do jisté míry tuto situaci předvídat a mezinárodní společenství mělo být na ní asi připravenější. Uh, I have to say that I, I was surprised that with the events that uh, uh, took place after the invasion, these complicated events, uh, how is it possible that no one of the thousands and thousands of experts within government and in non-governmental organizations couldn't have uh, uh, predicted this to some greater extent and could not have advised uh, policy in such a way as to help avoid some of it? President Clinton and President Havel, uh, this has been a great treat for all of us here. And President Clinton, you have this extraordinary capacity to understand issues at their deepest level and then to express uh, the dilemmas and the opportunities of policies to ordinary people and non-experts. Really an amazing capacity. And we admire you and are grateful that you come to Columbia and that you're our neighbor. President Havel, you have been part of the imagination of the modern world for freedom and, and for um, putting aside authoritarianism. Uh, your role as an artist and an intellectual gives, gives all of us hope in the intellectual world for some significant role in public life. And as you've addressed these issues of speaking truth to power, have lived a life of power speaking truth. And we admire you greatly for that and very, very happy to have you here for seven weeks. Thank you very much to the audience. And thank thank you. you.